This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, who are offering our listeners a special free month of unlimited access to all of their courses. Visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably Science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Hey Andy. Hello. Got a, we're joined by a, a rare English person. <laughs> so, so, breath of fresh air. I is. am drinking a cup of tea. You are, this is true. In Every, your defense, you also asked for coffee, which I didn't have. And I that's true, tea. and I'm putting on this accent to impress people, so it's, <laughs> it's by the by. It works. Oh, that is works. the voice of Rob Yescom, and I'm gonna... So, a little, a little preamble to this, because... He he hasn't been mentioned on the show before, but his effect on my life has because you may remember when I was in London and Andy did a couple of episodes without me. One of the, the year roundup episode, you mentioned VR and went, "Oh, well, no one's actually doing that or buying that." I didn't mean to cast aspersions. Not at all. I think that's virtual. a reasonable aspersion to cast. <laughs> and then I came back and immediately in the first episode went, "Hey, guess what? I just bought." The reason I bought that is because. I was round at another friend's house where Rob also was, a mutual friend of the two of us, and he had his virtual reality thing with him and also works in VR and gaming. I should say you, you are you're also you're a writer and game designer and most recently you've been working a lot in virtual reality. Yes, yeah. So I, I've I spent or I spent most of my career as a as a writer in games, do a little bit in, in features now, but the 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 journey from what we call flat games into VR, it's kind of a short hop because the production process is very similar, even though the ultimate experience that you have at the other end of that inside the headset is transformatively different. Uh, yeah, so I think before we get into the stories, I'd love to talk a bit about that because you are, you're quite the VR evangelist or a... I mean, so are you now. Don't, don't play it cool now. <laughs> Everyone is once they, once they try really it It's really fun. I, you yeah. had to go oh, on, a, on my one last week. and it It's was, as cool as you think it is. When yeah, you yeah. try it, you buy it. It yeah. is so amazing. And it was, so I've been working in VR for about seven or eight years now from when it used to be sort of, you know, a circuit board on the side of a, a headset with sensors up in the, in the corners of your room and you'd have a, a two grand PC, a two grand headset. Cables joining the two. Right. Those days are over. The days of motion sickness are over. We're at a point now where you can go on Amazon today and buy something that has no wires. And we're almost at a point now where, uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead too far here, but the headset that, that Matt bought that I showed him is a thing called the Oculus, Oculus Quest, um, which doesn't have an outboard PC. Everything's self-contained, inside-out tracking. I'll bore you with what all that means in a minute. But what it means is, is that it's a headset that you can take anywhere, play anywhere. You can play it outside, inside. It takes one second to set up. Um, and as of a couple of months ago, you don't even need, or, or you're not going to need, controllers. Now, with the inside-out tracking, three-dimensional ca- 3D uh, cameras, we can see your hands. We can put your hands into VR in front of you. It's wild. And all of that, 450 bucks. That's pretty amazing. Wait, so the VR thing, I mean, the uh, the no controller thing would require your hands to always be... It requires nothing. It just requires your hands. So but the, is, there, is, there, is the field of view of, of the cameras enough that if your hands are... I guess your hands can't be behind your back. Well, right, but, but that's but true, it's a, yeah. It's a your wide hands range can't be behind your back, but yeah. then 
in VR because you can't feel the object you would be touching, it sort of wouldn't matter if you. Why hands. would you be reaching behind yourself? There's nothing there. Oh, good point. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it's all based on the same way that the headset tracks itself in space, which it has a. Bunch I mean, of- I guess there is stuff behind there. Like you could, you could theoretically, like there could be a, an app that teaches you juggling and has like, like behind the back tricks. Well, there's there's all sorts of ways. Uh, the the way that that your motion is detected is not a, a binary thing. Like either it's seen or it's not. That's a component to it, but. Uh-huh. Um, part of how we might design something would be to say, okay, I think that if your hand goes like this, I, and no one can see right now, but as if I'm reaching to the small of my back, I'm going to make the assumption that you're trying to put your hand behind your back. So right. I can hear, so from uh, in front of my eyes to my hip, the headset can see you. And then me as a designer, I'm saying, well, that motion, that speed uh, is connected to a mechanic we've designed where we put uh, you know, your hunting knife is you keep it in the small of your back. So I know you're going to go for the hunting knife. So now I got, say, a trigger input from the controller, which can talk to the headset. Right. That tells uh, me you've got- oh, that makes sense. And I guess, like, if you did that, if I was looking in that direction, I couldn't see where your hand went. I could, as a human, I would make certain assumptions. Like, okay, right. his hand was moving with that momentum. Exactly. A human arm can go on average this far behind someone's back before they they pull their shoulder out. So it's it, that's roughly where it's going to. That's that's interesting because we, well, I mean, we're skipping way ahead into into the, the the deep trenches of this thing. But part of what you're talking about there is what we call an IK system, which is that some VR things that you've tried, um, you'll see a floating hand, which is basically the the headset tracking the controller in your hand and saying, "Well, your hand must be here because the controller's here." Some games you'll see your hand floating here, and you'll also see your wrist, your forearm, your elbow, and an arm attached to what appears to be your shoulder. It can't see your shoulder, your arm, your forearm, any of that stuff. It doesn't know what that data is. What it does know is if the controller is at this axis, I know where a human hand is going to be. And I can extrapolate because I understand the musculature uh, tendons and bone uh, conditions of the human arm to predict where your arm must be. Okay, yeah, because that makes sense. Because even I was sort of trying to, trying just now to sort of keep my – I'm holding my, my phone – keep right. my hand still in space and move my elbow without moving it. And I, I can't. Right. I'm Even – if I'm trying to move my elbow around while keeping the phone still, it's still rotating slightly in space. It's almost impossible to hold it completely plain. Right. And it's not that... that uh, I mean, I can't, we're one minute into this podcast talking about IK systems. But it's not that an IK system is going to be perfect, perfect, perfect in VR. But it's all about the layers of uh, believability or immersion rather than believability. Immersion that you're layering on top of people. And part of that is sound. Part of that is vision. Part of that is uh, the underlying technology of those little pieces like IK that you stitch into other systems to make it feel alive. So what? let's get into the terminology then because there's, yeah. there's a... There's a lot of phrases and terms here. So, inside was it inside outside tracking? Inside out tracking. So, inside out tracking. Really, what that boils down to is the headset doesn't need something outside of itself in order to know where it is. So, in the early days of VR, you needed uh, like a, an infrared or a radio wave camera on the outside of the the unit to say, "Hey, I can see the headset on your head." And okay. The headset can see the sensor, and so that's that finds its place in real space. So, I I remember, for example, I remember the very the first time round for VR in the yeah. mid nineties. Ninety five, baby. Is that when it was? I yeah. remember. In, in I remember the video with the the wait. I, I tried it out at the tro- in the Trocadero yeah. in central London, and then there was that daytime TV game show that Craig, Craig Charles, Charles hosted. hosted. Me- I watched a clip of that two days ago. Build me a Borg. The his catchphrase was "Build me a Borg." What was the name of the show? I can't it. remember. But, but it's uh, a, yeah, well, who- but but I remember in the Trocadero you would which is just a, a 
massive thing in the centre of London by Piccadilly Circus that's full of shops, but also there's like a massive arcade. Okay. But it was like a super futuristic arcade sure, and it yeah. has all the latest games and it had this big VR complex. But I remember you, you'd step into these pods almost. Mm. You'd step onto these raised platforms with a circular barrier around you and that sort of contains... I imagine that contains a lot of the tracking information. That's looking at where you are and judging your movements. I I can't say I know meaningful details about that that old tech, but I played that exact same thing at the Trocadero, where I remember you were being chased around a maze and you had a shotgun that was this like yep. Th- there was a controller that you held that had a wire as thick as an exhaust pipe <laughs> that went all the way into the, you know into the bowels of that machine. Um, I also remember at Blockbuster Video up the road from me when I was a kid, there was a, a flight simulator that blew our minds. But you know, as as yeah. with everything, oh, I remember t- the flight simulator as well. Um, yeah. But uh, the game was co- the show was called Cyberzone for That's those completists at home. Cyberzone. And I remember, yeah, and I remember the phrase Cyber Swindon from that show. That's where it was set. <laughs> I also, I mean, we're going for the massive tangent, but I, I rewatched uh, bits of Games Master the other day. Uh-huh. Oh, God. What was Patrick? So Patrick Stewart was a famous uh, astronomer. I went to a taping once of Games Master, on was which a in- pre-very famous Take That played uh, Bomberman 2. You can still find the footage online, but I'm not. Wow. Do you think there's still an audience listening to this at this point? Bomberman no, no, listening to a pre Can I be a proxy that? for the American, for the non-British <laughs> audience, and uh, ask about Games Master? I'm Googling it as we speak. So Games Master was like, in, in the days before the internet, for kids listening, there, there was a time when that, that was true. Um, if, if you couldn't... Uh, play a demo of a game the next best thing was watching someone on tv playing it it's ironic that's sort of come around now yep. twitch and, and streaming platforms but um but it was sort of housed in this bizarre world in which somehow like a world famous astronomer patrick uh, patrick moore that was his name um played a character on this show who was in charge of games and lived in a video game and then would invite challengers to come and play his games is this the head that I'm seeing? When yeah, I, the, the sort uh, of weird cyber head. Or, yeah, that yeah, thing. and that's yeah. like that's like a 80 year old man who has no idea what he's doing there. Um, it's like Alec Guinness agreeing to do this uh, space opera. I mean, in at, at least Alec Guinness is an actor. I mean, this is like he he never performed in anything before <laughs> that or after it. Uh, also, fun fact: uh, most of it was hosted by Dominic Diamond. But mm. the middle season of it was Dexter hosted Fletcher, by Dexter baby. Fletcher, who is now famous Hollywood director, Dexter Fletcher. Right, right. Director of, of what kind of things? Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, and, and Rocket Man. Yeah, He did uh, both of those? He, he took over from Brian Singer when he got oh, fired from Bohemian Rhapsody, right. and he did Rocket Man by himself, and he did... Uh, what else did he do? Sunshine on Leaf. Buffalo Eddie, The Eddie the Eagle movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway. Uh, yeah, the '90s. I, I I just remember the the boom of like uh, your Dynamonics, your Lawnmower Man, your uh, yeah. It was right. It was that, right in that right. at that time when everyone it's was like, Denzel "It's one. the future." Matt, I want to know now that you've spent time in VR. Um, do you feel like Lawnmower Man? You've become uh, some kind of cyber genius. I feel like I'm in very serious danger of <laughs> letting my powers get out of control. <laughs> that reminds me of like in Watchmen, which obviously is a great graphic novel. But have you guys both read? Watchmen. I've, I've watched, watched the Watchmen, movie. Yeah. Just no, the, but in the original, like the the smartest guy in the world is the smartest because he has a wall of CRT TVs that have every channel playing at once. That makes mm. him the smartest. Which, by that definition, Elvis Presley would have been. You know, our. That's right. That's the smartest thing you can do is die <laughs> on the toilet. <laughs> Watch every channel at once. Yeah. Uh, so, 
inside out tracking is that's the word for you don't need to place sensors around your room or around the right. body you just put a th- from where the thing is from inside it from <laughs> okay, where the, tell me more from where the thing physically is this is what you're saying right that where we call this podcast planning. Yeah. What's happening here. From within the, the headset itself, it can detect its exact position and orientation. Yes, that's right. So the, the way that that used to be done, so if you remember the Wii where you were swinging the controller around playing tennis and doing bowling, part of that was uh, the, I presume it was infrared connection between the end of the Wii controller seeing the TV and part of it was an accelerometer inside the, the controller. The days of the accelerometer are over because it's sort of imprecise. Right, because that's what could my previous... My intermediate experience of VR after the 90s Trocadero stuff and before the Oculus now was the Google Cardboard, which I think Andy also has, where you just put your phone in the cardboard thing Mm. and it uses the accelerometer. And And it's not bad, all things considered, for five bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the tricky things with VR is that, I mean, I feel like we've launched super deep into this without any kind of learning curve people coming in. Our listeners will love it. the tricky thing with VR is that if you watch a trailer for a movie, you get a pretty good sense of what the movie's going to be. If you watch footage of what someone is seeing inside VR, it's meaningless. And you, I mean, it's... it's Without the depth. Yeah, you can, you can only understand it once you've done it. And I guess you guys have both been inside, so you get a sense of what that means. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is, of course, when you're trying to market it... Right. There's no way to do it. So the It'll Google seem jerky because your head's not moving as the field of vision that you're being shown on this flat screen is moving, sort of, right? right? Or, right. Well, it's, what I mean is, is that if I, uh, because, okay, for, as a sort of microcosmic example, um, the processing power in a standalone headset like the Oculus Quest is nowhere near the processing power of, uh, you know, a separate PC or a PlayStation or an Xbox. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that means is, is that when I'm looking at footage that's being rendered in the game engine inside an Oculus Quest, it doesn't look anywhere near as good as a flat video of a game or PlayStation. And sense. when I put those yeah. two things next to each other, me as a gamer, I'm like, well, am I going to get VR or not? Well, what I see here is that the VR video, which is flat, just like the flat game, doesn't look that great. Right, it's, it's low, low resolution, low resolution. it's kind of jerky. It- well, it's not that it's necessarily jerky, but the... But it's low pixel, small... Kind of. It's, it's really just... There's a, there's a number of ways in which it will look or, or will, will be less capable than a, than a PC game, let's say. Um, but you'll fundamentally see that it looks less impressive than uh, a traditional game. So the question is, how do you differentiate in the mind of a consumer? Because their only metric for judgment is what they've known for the last 25 years, which is, is that like games are flat and they're on TV. Yeah. Watch, uh, experience something, yeah. That to, say, you know, to say to someone anecdotally, well, you're in it, rather than being you know, sitting on your couch and watching on the TV, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah I, I get what that would be like. <laughs> you don't. It's like if I were to say to you guys, this conversation we're having right now in, your, in this room isn't happening. We're not here. None of this is real. That's a huge leap to convince someone of in a marketing campaign. <laughs> so the only way, and this is why this is why it's such an exciting year for VR, is that for years um, VR required, you know, it was a big barrier for entry in cost and in uh, space in your house, and all that stuff was a big problem. Um, and but, also just just technical setup, like if, if yeah, absolutely. If you're a, I guess it's also sort of the leap between. When, when dedicated games consoles came out and rather than having to have a computer that you then load a game into and you know have to know how to run a 
DOS command or whatever. You oh just put a cartridge in a box. I almost forgot about that whole process of playing like King's Quest on whatever 80s PC. We yeah, had, it was like see, like, like run on the five and a, whatever the five something inch floppies are. I yeah. remember the days of the Amstrad. This is a huge sidebar, but where you, like it would take. 40 minutes to load a game off of a cassette, cassette tape. tape. So you had to be really sure you wanted to play that game. And yeah. you had to have something to go and do for 40 minutes. But the reason why it's an exciting year for VR is because up until now, there's been a big barrier for entry in setup, in cost, in space. This is the first year where we've had a relatively affordable, freestanding piece of hardware that you can take to a buddy's house and say, hey, try this, instead of trying to convince them to come over to yours. Right. So This is the first year? Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, the Oculus Quest launched uh, Q3 last year, I think. Wait, what uh, was... The, but Oculus, Oculus as a brand has existed for a while, but it had, it had a separate console. Yes, that's right. Too, or? So, not a separate console, but there was a... There still is the Oculus Rift, which is a, a slightly higher grade piece of hardware that's still tethered to a PC. Okay. So, on a technical level, it's capable of more. But it doesn't have the flexibility for people to go out and evangelize to a friend to say, "Hey, you've got to see this, you guys. I'm bringing it over." Yeah. Um, and Matt, I can, see, you know, I see your your carry case over there that your quest yeah. is in. It's it's the size of a handbag, like it's it's tiny. Um, yeah. It, by the way, this is not a paid endorsement. It's just a really cool thing. If it yeah, sounds I mean, like we're not. <laughs> yeah. But the reason why it's so exciting is that if you look at um, television or if you look at computers, the reason why those two platforms are ubiquitous is not because there are great TV shows, not because there are great video games, but because they're tools of education. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's really exciting here is that in the early days of VR, it was purely hardcore gamers who were willing to do the technical setup who probably had the PC already. So that was sort of the, the research phase. Now we're at a point where this is something that you can put in a school. And Matt, you were talking about a, a documentary called Traveling While Black um, on, on the Oculus Quest, which is, you know, it's something that you could uh, read about, you could watch a video about, but there is something powerful about being in the place at what feels like the time. Yeah, this is a, something that was made, I think it was co-produced by the New York Times, mm-hmm. and it's a 20-minute documentary, but you are, it, you're placed in one of the diners, like the lunch counters, that was one of the safe places in the Green Book. Okay. Uh, off of of uh, Green Book movie fame. Sure. Uh, but... Uh, you get placed inside the diner and then you're hearing you're seeing interviews in 3d with the people who are talking about their experiences and then it takes a pivot halfway through and it like it takes quite a dark turn but it's i thought it was a very strong piece of storytelling but it's a thing that like rewards looking around and yeah well it, it i think again it doesn't what's interesting is it doesn't have all of the capabilities that you were talking about like it doesn't let you move through space in the way that game that virtual reality games do. You can only just rotate your head and look around. Well, it's a film thing, but right? you are it's, yes, it's a linear. But you but you are like in the diner, seeing like you're sitting next to and opposite these people telling their stories. Yeah, and it is so much more visceral than uh, just watching it at a distance on a TV. Yeah. You're sort of placed in the diner, and then you're placed in a train that's traveling through between these places, and oh, cool. and then. And then it sort of goes deeper in terms of like who you're, who you stories you're hearing, and you know you hear some quite sort of dark no, stories. No, but yeah, probably assume. Yeah. But uh, but again, so because you're so close up to the person who's telling this really personal story, it does have a power. It's it's interesting you talk about uh, 
that it's a film thing, which means that you can't move through space. So what, what that means to people who are, who are uninitiated is you may have seen uh, like a 360 video on Facebook where if you move your phone around, you're looking around inside the video. So as of right now, um, if you want to film live action content, the production process of doing that is different to producing what we would call navigable content, which is something you can walk around inside of three, 3D space. So to explain what that means... Um, a 3D video, uh, a three-dimensional video, 360 video is effectively a spherical camera that's capturing all directions at all times. The problem is, is that when you as the viewer are effectively inside that spherical camera, the minute you want to move your head onto a different axis that the camera didn't film, there's nothing there for you to see. So the whole video is basically stuck to your head like a like a, an astronaut's helmet. Right. It was a slightly weird experience, that film. So for, when I... When I moved my head forward, if I was looking at, say, a bottle of ketchup that was on the counter, that bottle of ketchup would move forward with me. The whole counter would move forward with me. Oh, right. oh, oh. But, I mean, as long as you didn't actually move the center of gravity right. of your head, but just rotated on its very axis. And I got axes, used to that see... quite quickly, but, yeah. uh, but it was a different experience from having been in sort of 3D games designed from the ground up where you can, you can move forwards and sideways through that space. Right. So what, the thing that, that makes the real feel real is what we call parallax. So if you look at me and you try and move your head to see inside my ear, the inside of my ear is there. Whereas if you're looking at a 360 video, you try and move your head and my head comes with you and you don't get to look around inside my head. Right. However, um, that was the early... The uh, early 360 video was filmed in that way with a spherical camera. However, we're now entering a phase with a technology called light field capture and volumetric capture. So light field capture um, is... Basically, the simplest way to describe it is the the early versions of it is that you would get like a 10K camera, take take hundreds of photographs of this room and then stitch it back together inside a 3D engine and create something that ostensibly looks the same as this room, photorealistic. Mm -hmm. Um, Volumetric capture is uh, if we want to, uh, let's say we want to have you inside that room that we just created with light field capture and I want to have a... uh, you acting naturally, having this conversation with me. Um, the old way of doing that would have been to build a 3D model of you that we then rig up with a bunch of bones that an animator can move, or you might do motion capture. And we sort of, through a bunch of stages, we create a performance that is going to look like you. Mm-hmm. What uh, uh, volumetric capture is doing is you would sit inside what is effectively a four-dimensional green screen, like a, a green room. A bunch of cameras would capture you, your performance, and then you become a three-dimensional video that's like an object that we would then place inside the three-dimensional space that we created with light field capture. So what that means is is that we're creating, we're not quite there yet because the the technology isn't quite smooth enough yet, but we're getting close to a point where we can have a photorealistic copy of you now, your performance, moving, acting, living, and transplant that into a 3D engine. So, And it would still be, I mean, obviously, it's not interactive in terms of like, Moving forward in time, my body did did what it did. It's just you can look at the, it doing that from any angle you want, and it will change what you're seeing of that. Yeah. Like, so, that, so right now we're at a point where we can do that, and then the the fidelity of that three dimensional video will improve over time as file sizes get smaller, becomes more manageable, can be used in more things. The really exciting stuff coming around the bend is uh, so you know when you go onto a website and it says uh, click on the six street signs. 
what you're doing there, you've never seen this where you- to, Six street signs? Yeah, so it would be like uh, nine squares and it would say, click whichever squares have a car in them. Oh, capture, okay. So what you're doing there is you're not just proving you're a human, you're also helping Google's machine learning and AI to right. recognize what the car is. So through machine learning, part of that is uh, the AI understanding what your eyes are in that three-dimensional video, understanding the uh, the limitations and delineation of your chin to your neck, let's say. Yeah. Because, and this, uh, forgive, forgive me if I'm losing you guys. But, no, no, no. no. Um, one of the reasons why when we work in games, we're a little reticent to use uh, volumetric capture, to use three-dimensional video, um, is in part because you can't edit the motion. And what I mean by that is, is that when Andy Circus is being a monkey jumping around the place, if he doesn't get it quite right, an animator can go in afterwards and say, uh, put your foot here, uh, put your arm there, oh, look a little bit more emotional here. Whereas with a video, you ca- I can't edit your performance. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to create a systemic experience, which is like, let's say I'm the VR guy and I want to punch you, in order for your head to react, there needs to be a, uh, an animation system that's going to make you do the animation or, or do the piece of video of your head reacting. Right. So the problem... With, and there has to be an animation that can cut that can cut in at different times and well, move seamlessly not, between different animations. Well, in the case of volumetric capture, of course, we're not talking about animations. We're talking about real physical performance. Well, so, I guess now I'm trying to think of the difference between, on a conceptual level, between volumetric capture and and motion capture. Shouldn't those... Aren't those kind of similar in terms of what they're capturing? Or they. They are in a way, but the problem is is about editing the motion. Yeah. So in order to use that volumetric video of you in a in a game where I can whack you in the head with a baseball bat, I need to be able to stitch together pieces of video. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that unless there's some kind of uh, motion blending or understanding of what your head is. Because when I okay, when I take that three D video, I, I, no, I get it now. Yeah, yeah. When I take that three D video of you and put it in an engine, it doesn't know what your eyebrows are. But if you're Andy Circus, I know what your eyebrows are. Or it's just like all, all it's getting from Andy Circus is where all the ping pong balls are. Then you're putting things on those ping pong balls, like, like yes, it's like puppeteering. Catch, a, right, right. Yeah. So you can put it onto that skeleton later. But in the 3D video, it doesn't know what's you and what's not. Right. So we can't control the motion. However, we're on the verge of technology where we can, through machine learning, it, it knows where your eyes are. So yeah. we could, for instance, correct an eye line. So let's say I take a 3D video of you, 3D video of you, because you were recorded in separate green boxes, the eye line is a bit off. And I'm like, oh, they're not really looking at each other. With a little bit of AI, a little bit of machine learning, it can say, hey, this is where their eyes are, and I want, them to, I want the eye line to match. Right, because that's even something just outside of gaming that haven't, uh, I can't remember whether it was uh, FaceTime or Skype, or one of those companies has experimented with in real time moving people's eye lines so that they're looking at the camera rather than yeah like if 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 i same, same exact technology same exact technology yeah so currently like if i'm facetiming you i'm looking at the picture of your face the but the camera off. is right. 3 inches above that mm-hmm. and so it corrects it so that you're looking straight at the camera which means that when i watch your video you're looking straight at me right rather than looking below me so what the 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 end game of that is being able to delineate between uh, arms, fingers, feet, the whole thing. So eventually, the motion becomes editable. And then, the days of motion capture are over. Because you would you know, just have the actor do what they're doing. And yeah. yeah. Cameras everywhere. Uh, you'd, you would you'd get uh, you know, the Venn diagram. Okay, there's there's a case to be made to say, okay, if you're, if you're playing a particularly wild CG character, maybe you don't want that. But those but technologies, could... the overlap is eventually going to mean that one will be the other. So I'd, I'd heard of light field cameras before because I kn- they exist as still cameras. And I remember reading about them a while ago. And if you take a picture with a, a still picture with a light field camera, 
it gives you the ability to change where you're focused after the fact yes that's that's part of it it's um the best way to think of it is like it's a light field capture in in the in the in a stills camera is sort of like a tube of of image that you're capturing so it means that unlike uh a 360 video if i I, there's a sort of a sphere around my head that I can move my head inside of so I can change my parallax of the image in front of me. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. It also says here in the Wikipedia page, like holograms are a type of film-based light field image. Um, that sounds about right. Um, so we, we're jumping all around the place. So Yeah, this is, this is like the ramblings of a Victorian <laughs> madman. I feel like no one is going to understand what we're talking about. Um, because here's the thing about VR, is that ultimately all of this sounds complex and weird and, and hard to explain, but really what we're trying to do is create something that is as close to being indistinguishable from real as possible. And that doesn't mean photoreal, it means experientially real, that I feel emotionally uh, affected in a true way by what I'm seeing. And the, coming back to the quest, the reason why it's so, one of the reasons why it's so exciting is that, as you know, Matt, the setup to put it in your house takes five seconds. And then once you've set it up, if you can do it in real life, you can do it in VR. And that's the beauty of it, is the, uh, for people who, who don't play games, if, you, if someone hands you an Xbox controller, you're like, oh my God, there's like 16 buttons, I don't know what any of these things do. There's a barrier for entry before you get to the fun. I actually, I'm not a gamer, and I remember basically tagging out about 20 years ago when they added the joystick to the joypad. Like, that was about when, <laughs> that was when I crapped out. Like, when, like, around the time that it went from like the Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive. Sure, yeah. Uh, to the Xbox Three, like also when, calling when both thumbs have things they can be doing. Calling, it, calling it a joypad is a very yeah. games master. That's, yeah, <laughs> but like once you've got like the controller with the buttons, and then it has a little joystick on it as well. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's too. There's too many things. Why are you plug? Even why are you attaching it, one type of controller to another type of controller? That N64 was probably when you tapped out, right? Holy yeah. right moly! There. There's an N64 right yeah. there, and I didn't even notice. I've just got it from Mario Kart and Goldeneye. Um, I was I was very lucky because my when I started my career in games, I um, so this is this is like a yeah. Let's go my, to the backstory. Yeah, okay, yeah. to the backstory. So I did a fine art degree, and while I was in the middle of doing that degree, I was looking around at the employability status of the other people in the degree and realized, oh, it's like three percent. So I need to figure out something else to do. So I happened to this is a very roundabout way. I happened to have a little art studio opposite uh, an Indian Asian uh, production company, and I ended up moonlighting. Uh, writing shows for Indian cable TV. Strange story. Um, and some, are, there, are there any? Because I think we've got a few Indian listeners. Are there any shows that they might remember? Yeah, I used it? to write for Z Music and Z TV. I made. Uh, oh, say I made. I was one of the team who worked on Desi Pulse, Mellow Madness, Photo Fit, and then no one's going to remember Photo Fit. Photo Fit. Um, I there's there's probably in fact I know there is on YouTube there's a, an Indian music video where I play a robotic nightclub bouncer <laughs> where I'm aged like 21. I will okay that that's part of the backstory we'll put aside for we'll, a we'll see if we can track it down and if we yeah. can we'll put it in the uh, show notes. It was uh, Sarinda Ratan uh, the lick was number one in the charts. You guys, Jesus. I'll, don't worry, I'll, I'll find it for you, don't worry. Also, I'll that, find it. If that was in India and number one, that means that you oh, were seen no, by it was, many, it was, many people. It was in the, the Indian charts in the UK. Okay. So it was like a sort of a speed garage track, basically, where I play a, a nightclub who scans uh, a woman who's coming into the nightclub who, for some reason, wants to sabotage, spoiler alert, wants to sabotage the speakers. 
I scan her. She has a screwdriver in her bag, but I let her in. Why? I don't know why I did it. What positive thing could a person do? Well, because you were a robot nightclub bouncer and you hadn't been programmed to stop a screwdriver from... Oh my God, you're right. Oh my, see, that's why we need machine learning, you guys, because human programming is not enough. <laughs> right. So anyway, so I'm working this in, in Indian cable TV, and the the director of Desi Pulse um, got a development deal with the UK Film Council. I helped a little bit in, in developing that script, a tiny bit, and that sort of got me into script consultancy. And then uh, eventually I wrote a, a sitcom that never got produced, but it got shortlisted for this very obscure writing award in the UK called TAPS. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Um, and so, by coincidence, the guys who made Goldeneye um, had splintered off and made their own company, Free Radical Design, and made a game called Time Splitters. And they happened to be looking for a writer. They happened to get in touch with this super obscure awards body. I went overnight from a £250 budget for a show per week to a $30 million game. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing at all. It was a catastrophic disaster that nuked my career for 10 years. So I clawed my way out from under the wreckage of this game uh, and sort of eventually built myself back to a... You know, sorry, a, that, that game was called Time Splitter? Uh, no, oh, no, 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 no. Time Splitter was a good game. I don't know that game. Okay. No, no. This, this is a terrible. I won't even speak its name. It's, it's, it's okay. a, an awful memory. But, um, you know, there's no better way to learn how not to yeah, fuck so up a game you, than to fuck were, up a game. Were you already a gamer just in your oh, yeah, free time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. you know, I've been a gamer my whole life. Yeah. But uh, in those days, it was, it was the Wild West. So what now... Year, what year is this about? Uh, this would be 2005, I think, so thereabouts. Oh. So we were at a point where budgets were getting huge, but the barrier for entry was still low, which is I owe my entire career to. So I was, you know, I'd be work, I was working with those guys and, like, the designer who I'd be sitting next to would be working on this $30 million game. Like, the job he had before that was of a fishmonger. And another guy was, uh, was worked the bakery at Sainsbury's. So it was just, it was mayhem. And everybody in the company, because they, they expanded very quickly because they got a bunch of money and the, the company grew very quickly. Um, and we, uh, th- like, the average age of employees would be, like, 23. Right. In charge of this huge juggernaut. Um, so... You know, it was it was agonizing at the time when it went wrong, but that was that was how I started my career with this nuclear disaster. I'm just spending two decades after that going like, well, just do the opposite of that. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was it was it, it was awful because it cost you know it cost people money, and it cost people time, it cost people effort and heart. But ultimately, fantastic lesson in how not to mess up a game is to mess up a game really, really badly. But do you feel like you bore responsibility on the story end for the game not being good? Or oh not? yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. No, I, I was. Yeah, I was, other reasons. There's a lot of reasons it could, it could fail. No, I was. I was green as grass and uh, had no idea what I was doing. Um, there, there were other problems in, in in what we were building and how we were building it, but certainly the parts that I was responsible for um, were not good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can't really duck. I can't duck that one. Yeah, I'm. I'm a, a pretty casual gamer, but when I get into something, I get really into it, and and I, I appreciate when it, when a game is built with great story. Mm. And I feel like I don't know how, what our percentage of our listeners are like hardcore gamers or more passive like i am but um like what are some examples of great story work in games in your opinion do you know that's it's an interesting question because i've been working in games for 16 years thereabouts um i have no idea what the game is because it's such an amorphous medium so you know i can say with some confidence for the last 120 years a movie has been two hours and somebody learns something about themselves at the end with a game Angry Birds is a game, and so is Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> right. and so is uh, well, 
there's a whole plethora of games that have no overlap yeah. in what kind of game they are, how much story there is, how stories communicated, what the platform is you play it on, what the cost is, what the audience is. There can be no overlap. What it means to win. Yeah, well, yeah. Here's, the, here's the thing. is that I wouldn't even say that a game is about winning. A game, I don't even know that you can cl- conclusively say that success is what a game is about. We're at a point now where, where games, the, the tendrils of games reach down into high art all the way into like Candy Crush. And those two sure, are the yeah. same medium. Yeah. So... Uh, that's sort of a, a, a prefix to, to saying that there are lots of things that I admire, but even though the rules and principles of story are always the same, the equation in which you solve them, or the equation you devise to solve them is new every time. Yeah. Sometimes you're using bits of the same equation again, but uh, it's the level of mathematics to how you construct story in, in, a, in a game is continually fascinating so we we say that the player is like uh, an actor who doesn't know their lines uh-huh. and if i reach out and say say these lines do it this way then i'm completely undermining what's great about games which is that you get some agency um how much agency you do or don't have is really about the design of the game so you might say okay uh in a linear game you have very little agency where or, or a sandbox game you have loads of agency and you make Constantine between those two states where you're being forced to do stuff and being allowed to do stuff. Um, but that's the, the sort of uh, fluid relationship between designer and player is how much do you get to do and how much do I get to do and how do we collaborate in the middle? How do I encourage you to have an experience that's going to be good, but I can't force you to have one that's good because then that's not fun. Right. And how do you keep it accessible to... like? I mean everybody was raving about Bioshock 10 years ago or whatever that came out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I guess I should try this. And I was such a novice to that kind of game. Mm. And it was so immersive that it would kind of terrified me. I was living with a guy who had this man cave <laughs> and it was just like too much surround sound. Like the game's kind of terrifying. Right. And even on the easy level, I didn't get to play it for long enough to really get into the story. And I was like, Oh, the story's so great. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not good enough to get to a point where I can, I almost wanted to just watch it as a movie or something and see, what ended up happening in it, mm-hmm. um, but I guess I'm which not, you now I'm not can ideal, do as well. That's a weird right, thing about modern that we can just yeah, watch, Twitch like, or, yeah. or just YouTube walkthroughs where someone plays the whole game and you just watch it. Do you know it's interesting that the to that point about oh you could just watch it as a movie. The best games are the ones where you can't do, you can't that. do that, and part of that is about the you know there's an element of non-linearity that people who maybe don't play games think of game choice as being about binary choices, left door, right door, upstairs, downstairs. That that can be part of it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'll give you a weird example. Like This is something that could only happen in games. So many, 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 many years ago, I was briefly creative director at a company called Crytek UK. And while I was there, um, I went to a student showcase of like their demo designs. And this group of 19-year-old guys, they made a game called Cube, Q-U-B-E, that was a, a puzzle game. And for anybody that knows games, this game looked visually a lot like uh, a Valve game called Portal that was in like what oh, appeared yeah. to be a sort of test chamber in white cubes. And the underlying design of the puzzles was completely different. But when you looked at it, looked at the still of it, you're like, well, that looks, looks like, like a sort of ripoff of yeah. Portal. So when I saw the showcase, I was blown away by the puzzle design. I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And they said at the time, they said, oh, we want this to be our resume to get jobs. I said, no, 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 no. sell this game. And I presume a dozen people must have told them that because it was so great. They went on to sell it. They sold something like 300,000 copies of this thing between three guys, so they did great out of it. And then years later, 
um, they came back to me when I was freelance and said, hey, we're going to port this from PC to console for the first time. And because it had already been reviewed, they said, hey, in all the reviews, people say, oh, we wish there was a story. Would you write a story for this game that's already come out? Um, but we can't afford any new assets, which means we can't afford characters, we can't afford new scenes, any of that stuff. So the whole thing has to be voiceover. Mm-hmm. So that was a weird conundrum to say, well, okay, there's a game that already exists. And the beauty of that was that I could read reviews and see people saying, oh, well, this looks like Portal, this looks like Portal, this looks like Portal. So, okay, that's a, an expectation that the audience has on what the game is, that I know 100% they have, that I can now subvert right. it when I do to when I tell the story. And you would never be able to do that in any other medium on the planet. Re- reskin a thing that's already beloved and have it have a different narrative but still be good. And- but also to have something that's a finished product that's been reviewed and been released and then to take the expectations that they had of the product and then subvert them in an update on the product. That's why. And not remove any of the original good things right. about the thing. Exactly either. right. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they changed Sonic the Hedgehog's teeth. <laughs> yeah. just- I heard he just sort of swallowed his teeth and the new <laughs> ones just, just grew in. Uh, that, so you, you were also telling me when we first met about, um, uh, I guess it's not even a game, it's a, a sh- like a sort of murder mystery. Oh yeah. That- so, so when uh, anytime new hardware comes out, uh, or, or there's a, there's something new as possible on a technical level, the first thing that a designer is thinking is, well, in what way can we deliver content in a in a new way because of this? So, um, so how much is how much does the technology d- drive the storytelling, and how much do the storytellers sort of go to the tech people and go, can you make this happen? Uh, it's it's as amorphous as anything. So, for example, um, if you're if you're writing a uh, if you if you're making a show or making a movie, fingers crossed, the bedrock of that production is the script. In games, that's not necessarily the case. In fact, it's very 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 rare that the story is the bedrock that the product is built on. A lot of the time, it's through uh, it's something that might be art driven. So, someone might have done a piece of concept art and say, well, wouldn't it be cool if they were like mechs and you could jump in them and like you beat up other robots and stuff? Or it might be uh, a technical breakthrough. So, um, Was Portal kind of that? Was it the tech led the story? I don't know what the... So in the case of Portal, that was a, a team exterior to Valve who designed the core puzzles, the core mechanic of, of a Portal gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Valve saw that, loved it, took it, in, took it into the company and they polished the living hell out of it and it became this fantastic game. So the story is on top of design yeah. in, that, in that instance. Um, but, uh, what the hell was I talking about? Uh, technology driving story, uh, yeah. story coming first versus other things that aren't story coming yeah. first. Yeah, so for example, uh, I, I'm going to give this an example that I don't know is true, but I suspect is true, which is that uh, back around 2001, 2002, um, Ubisoft made a, a game called Splinter Cell, uh-huh. which is a, a game where you're a spy and you sneak around in the dark and you like shoot lights out so you can creep around in the dark. I strongly suspect that Ubisoft were not saying, hey, let's make a game where you're a spy. I think some clever engineer made what we call a dynamic light, which means that when I shoot the light, the light goes out. And then you say, well, okay, what do I do with that? Wouldn't it be cool if I'm sneaking around, shooting lights out so I can creep into the dark? And I suspect that's probably where that game grew from. But in the case that, you, that you're talking about, um, so to, to preface this, anytime all three of us, anybody listening, 
Anytime we've ever consumed a story in our entire lives, it's only ever been one of two forms. Either it's a straight line like a movie or it's some kind of branching system like a game. And Well, like a choose-your-own-adventure story. Yeah, as a, as a bedrock for, for how stories are told, it's only ever one of those two things. But the way that we experience our lives doesn't subscribe to either of those models. The way that we experience life is that as we sit here in this unit of time, you, Andy, you're the protagonist. And me and Matt, we're just humble supporting That's characters. That's what I would say this whole time. <laughs> but in the exact same unit of time, well, I'm the protagonist. No. You guys are just supporting characters. <laughs> and the people walking past the window over there are background to us, but we're background to them. And in order for reality to be the way it is right now in this moment, all of our lives had to be perfectly synchronized in order to be here now. So wouldn't it be cool if we could take that structure, the structure of real life, transplant it into VR? So what we made is a murder mystery called The Invisible Hours. And it's a sort of Agatha Christie-style murder mystery in VR. And it's in a, a mansion in a storm on an island. And it takes one hour to go through. But because there are seven suspects in this story, there's actually seven hours of narrative occurring within the single hour. So you see this kind of thing in immersive theater, like punch drunk kind of stuff. So what that means is that in VR, you can go anywhere at any time, total freedom. But let's say you wander into this mansion and you see, well, here's a detective standing over a dead body. I must be in a detective story. So I'm going to follow this detective up to the attic and see where he goes. Well, however long you may or may not spend up in the attic with that detective, you're missing right. what's happening in the drawing room, the dining room, the bedroom, the basement. So what that means is that even though the story is always the same, all three of us could have completely different perspectives on who the killer is, even what genre of story we're in, just on the basis of how we behave inside that unit of time. Which sounds weird, sounds complicated, but really what, no, it, it what it's sense, trying to do yeah. is, is replicate the experience of real life. If you get up right now and storm out and go to KFC, me and Matt are still going to be continuing our story here and you're continuing your story there. And our perspective on who you are as a guy, uh, if you storm out, we're like, oh, I hope we didn't upset him. But then if in your narrative, you go around the corner and you beat a homeless guy to death with a hammer just to feel alive, whoever sees you do that is going to have a different perspective, right. even though the story was always the same. So in that story, do you only get one shot at the out? How does it work as far as when the hour ends? Do you go back and like, well, I missed some things. I want to follow a different person, do it again, or what? You can. So think of it as like being inside a movie that you can pause and rewind. So let's okay. say you, in that example of the detective over the dead body, let's say he's he finds a clue, he rushes upstairs to the attic. I'm oh, I missed him. I'm going to rewind like a movie, and then I'm with him. Oh, I'm going to follow him upstairs. So what we didn't want to do was to create. Uh, challenge so it's not a game in the, in the sense of challenge um, it's more like your curiosity is the only thing that's going to really hook you in anything Yeah. so uh, the thing that's really wild about it is that when you've got seven hours of story all intersecting they're all interdependent on each other someone let's say uh, let's say we're all characters in the scene right now in the drawing room on the ground floor and in 19 seconds, you, Andy, you're going to get up and you have to arrive into a scene that's already in progress uh, in another room. And you have to enter that scene at three minutes and two seconds into that scene. Not only do I have to get you out of this scene on time and get you into that scene on time, I also have to consider, well, that scene you're entering is three stories up. So now you've got to traverse stairs and corridors, and I've got to factor in how fast are you walking? Are you happy? Are you sad? What's your performance like? And how does that affect the time and distance? And then you're doing that across seven characters across seven hours, every scene intersecting with the other. So this was an unbelievably complex mathematical puzzle. And the thing that makes it super duper duper wild is that 
if you were doing that in live theatre, let's say a big complex uh, interactive theatre production, right? Which the, like the sort of Sleep No More and things like that. Right. When you're doing Sleep No More, uh, if you're an actor going into another scene and you're ten seconds late, they can fill. But in the case of this, because it's all pre-baked animation, if we capture that on the motion capture stage uh, five seconds out, seven hours is broken because it doesn't intersect anymore. Which is why, coming back to what I was saying before about the importance of editing motion, yeah, is okay. that I need to yeah. speed you up by four seconds. And I can't do that with volumetric video yet, but I can do it with motion capture. So that was the thing that protected us uh, for a little margin for human error. Um, but anything outside of like 10 seconds and you, you're fucked. So, we, so you would do these live shoots where everyone had to hit their marks exactly for the yeah. entire... So we, we did something that was super unusual in games, which is that most of the time when you're, when you're capturing performances in games, you'll rock up at the mocap stage, motion capture stage, um, you know, do get the scene up on its feet, run it a couple of times, then shoot it. We spent almost a month rehearsing every single scene in that thing. So we had, I forget how many scenes we had, but a lot of scenes. Um, rehearsing them and blocking them to a point where they were within a five-second margin of what we... In fact, I'm, I'm even jumping ahead about how we knew that margin. So the paradox of writing something like this, this is, what, this is where it gets really tricky, right at the beginning, is that you can't write the script until you know to the exact second how long every scene's going to be. And so you can't know how long all the scenes are going to be until you write the script. Exactly right. <laughs> so the way that we did it, and it's, it's interesting because when I talk to people from linear media, it's, it, it seems like a real like, impossible thing. But coming from games, we, we do all sort of weird stuff like that all the time. But it was, it was new to us at the time still. But um, what we did is we broke it down, or I broke it down into five-minute chunks across a, a, a grid system. Say, so, okay, I think this is roughly what I think the story is going to be in rough, very approximate synchronicity. Then... Uh, once we finalized that we thought that's what the story was going to be, we would say, okay, in that story, I see that I'm going to need a character to definitely be in the kitchen. And I see that there definitely needs to be a secret passage. And I see that definitely uh, somebody needs to uh, fall to their death off something high. So now I'm in communication with a designer and we're saying, a level designer, and we're saying, okay, whatever this mansion's going to be, I need a kitchen. I need something that someone can fall off of. I need, I need this other specific thing. So then they're designing... Uh, a two-dimensional blueprint to say, okay, we think this is what the house is going to be. And then we test out in the five-minute synchronized blocks and say, is this roughly going to fit in the layout you have? Are you just kind of also having friends of yours stand around and do like, in the moment, like as you're thinking of it, mock-ups of what a scene is and how you'll interact before you get actual actors in? No, no, no. no, no. Well, I'll I'll bore you with that in a minute. But the the important thing initially is just the relationship between writer and level designer because you want to keep keep the relationship small. And are the levels designed... Is that all computer design, or will they actually ever build a 3D model, like a actual like clay or... Well, we, we don't need to do that. I'll come to that in a minute. So, so we, we do the five-minute chunks. We test out a two-dimensional blueprint. We went through, I think, 33 iterations of that blueprint. Once we have a blueprint that we're like, okay, I think this story will fit into this blueprint, then we move to what we call a white box, which is a, a three-dimensional model in a game engine. So we don't need to make a physical model. And then we are moving... Think of think of them as like little chess pieces right. representing those characters around to the times that we've laid out without knowing really what any of the scenes are. We know well, we know the story, but we don't know the scene, like the the the, minute, the moment to moment of the scenes. Um, once those chess pieces all fit in that uh, white box model of the house and the times match up, that becomes effectively like a lock picture. And I know, okay, no matter what, 
the time that I predicted for this scene of one minute, two seconds, that scene will be one minute, two seconds, no matter what. Mm -hmm. So then writing the scenes, you're comparing it to the 3D model and the timing of those chess pieces moving around and saying, okay, that piece has to leave that room in four seconds, has to cross this corridor into this scene. I know they're going to cross with this other character here, so I need something here. Um, once we're just gonna that, say, "Hey, what's up? What's up?" Yeah, like, all, all that stuff is important because you don't want them to feel like they're they're separate from each other until they arrive into scenes. They're coexisting in the space. So then you're writing all that content, and there's a draft of each of those scenes that we think is going to fit that time. So it's me alone at, at a, a keyboard, say, acting it out and saying, "Okay, I, this feels." I'm timing it. And I say, "Okay, this is one minute two seconds." Then this is where it's really unusual for games. We went to rehearsals and we're blocking those scenes. Um, based on the timing that I've predicted. Right. And then once we're, we're, once we're moving to blocking, then you're rehearsing in a space that is physically the same size as what the virtual space is going to appear to be. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, we can then say, okay, we've got to have a table here. I'm going to put a chair here. And when we block the scene, it's adding 10 seconds or we're realizing we can cut a few seconds or whatever it may be. So you're, you're iterating on the script over and over and over and over again. Once we've got that blocking locked, we're shooting the blocking just as reference, and then that's fitting a time within the five-second margin of where we know it needs to be because the problem you have in rehearsal is that if you're rehearsing it with that level of specificity, you're driving the humanity out of the performance because it's becoming math. Right. So then we say, okay, you've got a five-second margin to make this feel like it's still alive. Then we're going to a motion capture stage, and uh, as a little sidebar to this... I won't say who, but there are. Lo- this happens a lot, actually. There are studios that have I've watched burn millions of dollars on motion capture stages, just like having a go at it. Be like, well, what if we did this? What if we did this? <laughs> and for me, I was you know I was lucky. I started in big budget stuff, and then sort of worked my way into indie stuff, where I really think the, the more exciting events happen. Um, and in that space, you really learn the value of money. Um, so we don't do it like, like bigger, bigger budget productions might do. Everything's rehearsed and planned before we go to the mocap stage. So you're shooting what you want to keep. Um, so you're hitting like a you know three to five takes max, which on the mocap stage is not inexpensive, but it's not gonna it's not gonna destroy you. Um, and then you're shooting, and this is okay. This is where it gets super wild again. Uh, let's say that the motion capture volume, which is the space that you can capture performances in, mm-hmm. is uh, 20 feet long and 30 feet wide, or 30 feet long, 20 feet wide. And let's say that we have a main hall in the mansion that's 50 feet wide. Mm-hmm. Then you're like, well, okay, am I going to break up that performance halfway through because I want this person to cross the room while they're delivering a performance? No. So then we're doing this weird thing where we're saying, okay, we're going to bend virtual space into the physical space in a physical performance. And what that means is um, that person who is going to walk the length of the virtual hall is going to uh, walk to the end of the volume, the stage, and then turn left and then turn left again and walk back on themselves. Uh, And then when we come to putting that that motion into the engine, into the game, we're going to unfold that space into virtual space. Yeah. But then, when you've got seven characters in the scene together, who have to are reset all, for the other side of the room now as he's gone. Or? Well, it might it might be in the case of some of the more complex scenes. You've got a bunch of characters, like some who might be like halfway up the stairs, some who are on the ground floor, and you're folding them in on virtual space. So someone might be crossing the room, looking at someone that's not there because when you unfold the space, they're going to be on a different eye line. So you've got to do you've got to do geometry in there as well. Yeah, this is this is math and geometry. 
Um, and then you're trying to keep it alive as a as a performance because unlike most games, the the only selling point that we had is the story. Right. So it was it was wild. And are, are the actors people we might know? Uh, no, but okay, but, I mean, but well, the thing that was interesting about that is when we were casting it, um, because we, we were quite a low budget production, we were very lucky with the people that we got. I feel really, really, really excited still and we all still get together you know long after we finished rapping on it we still uh, we still get together to hang out um the crucial thing in casting was knowing well okay it's exciting to have a film actor like, oh this is a film actor that, that, that's cool but then you're like well okay so much of this is about a sort of theatrical understanding of how to use space yeah so we ended up and uh, this is I'm going to the real minutiae over here but oh, it's interesting. yeah, yeah. Um, our listeners love it when we go into minutia in uh in the in the building of this thing, it's not just considering okay where are these actors got to be in physical space and are they used to holding a stage. You've also got to consider well okay what's the user experience here because in a theatre I'm sitting way back in the audience and in a film I'm right in front of their face but in VR you might be either. So how do you create how big of a performance? Do you give exactly how, yeah, how yeah. big is the performance? So um, we we brought together film actors and stage actors together to try and create something that would be like, okay, there's a chance that someone might be right at the end of your nose or they might be 50 feet away. And something about your performance has to be big enough to get me and small enough to get him. <laughs> so it seems impossible, yeah. It was, do you know what? Looking back on it, it sounds like it is impossible, but somehow because you, you're really just trying to recreate something that feels like life. Right. When you're doing it, it feels natural, but explaining it sounds insane. But you wouldn't expect if someone's turned away from you and 20 feet away that you would hear what they're saying. So it's not unreasonable the person who's not next to them well, that, wouldn't hear their words. That right? speaks to the to the writing, of course, because uh, there's there's an old adage that if you're writing for certain channels, certain networks, you, you're writing sort of half in a radio play style because you know someone's going to be doing the ironing or looking at the phone. You want them to hear the story in dialogue as well as sit on right, the screen. Right, right. So we're doing a sort of version like that to say, well, okay, if someone is looking in... We don't think we, I don't think of any direction as being the wrong direction, but if they're looking in the direction where they're not going to catch that beat, what can we do to help them catch that beat? And part of that might be a music cue. Part of that might be uh, you hear uh, voices through a wall. You're like, oh, I wonder what's happening in that room. So that might tempt you in, or it's simply in the the phrasing of the dialogue to make sure that that key uh, clue is going to land in your mind one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So it's it's storytelling, technology, geometry. Timing, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of things to learn. It's all that stuff, and the 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 added layer, of course, on all this is that um, I was so keen that we weren't going to prescribe an experience to anyone. I've watched people play it online on on Twitch and, and streaming platforms, and they some people play it backwards, forwards, out of sync. They might follow one character all the way through. They might follow one character for ten minutes, then jump to another and rewind, and then watch the same ten minutes. All sorts of ways that they can play it. But there are some people who don't want to follow characters at all. There are some people who, when they start this experience, they pause it like a movie, all the characters frozen, they explore every inch of the house. So then there's, re- there's a responsibility on us to say, well, okay, if you can explore every inch, there has to be something, something there. fun to see. Yeah. So there's a whole other layer of story that's happening in letters and documents and all that stuff around the environment that's going to, and this is really what the whole experience is about, is that any information you learn is either setting something up or paying something off. Every single scene in The Invisible Hours, every scene is setting up a question or paying off something that you may have already heard about. But again, not there's not one right answer you're trying to get people to. You're trying to give them all exactly. good so, experience. But the, 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 
the importance of that is that because the only real quote unquote mechanic in the game is getting people's curiosity peaked, we have to make sure that the mathematical probability of your curiosity being peaked is super high. <laughs> so it means that every scene you've got to leave that scene with a new question. Oh my god, I wonder what that means. I wonder I wonder why he said that. I wonder where he's going. Or you've got to get the satisfaction of saying, ah, oh, I knew that's why he said that. Ah, oh, I knew he was going to go here. I knew that's what that was for. Um, so. Hey, you know how you could find out about any of these many disciplines? How is that, Matt? Uh, by subscribing to The Great Courses Plus. That is true. Our beloved sponsor. Oh my God, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, In fact, and all of this is built on... Uh, on the groundwork that was laid by the 20th century in which so many scientific advancements were made. That sounds like the course that we're both currently yes. looking at. Yes. If you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably, you can get a free month of access to all of their courses. We've talked about them a lot in the past. They have thousands of courses in any number of, of fields ranging from... I'd say every discipline that we've discussed so far today. Anything we've looked up. From uh, sort of the yeah. creative arts, storytelling... To mathematics, geometry, technology, science. You can find courses about those things. And maybe you become a game designer yourself one day or a storyteller or whatever yeah, you want to be. These are uh, university level courses taught by top professionals in their field. They're taught by professors, lecturers at leading universities. Yep. You can unlock unlimited access to objective, reliable, fascinating information on virtually any subject with over 40,000 five star reviews. We've been watching Science in the 20th Century, which is a fascinating look at how the entire world changed in our last century. Science increased its significance and effect on society. It began to permeate social and political life. New technologies created new wealth and a growing dependency on the practice of science to keep up with society's demands. Uh, it's, it's great, as are all of the courses on The Great Courses Plus. So go check them out. As we said, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably you'll get a free month of access to any of the courses you want to check out. I want to talk a bit more about the tech and particularly the tech side of VR because we were going uh -oh. into it a bit. I don't <laughs> but um, you said they don't use accelerometers anymore. I, th I think that's true. I'm going I'm to go out on a limb and say I don't think there's an accelerometer in the, in the quest for sure. Okay. So how do you know how it sort of tells your position and orientation through space? Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to explain it very badly. But basically, it's... Um, if anybody remembers on the Xbox, there was a thing called the Connect. Do you, do you guys? I, that? I worked at Microsoft when they were developing. You did. This. What did you do there? Oh, I was a, I was an orange badge. So I was writing for. Um, they, there was a short-lived um, Xbox Live version of the game show One Versus One Hundred, which was sort of the that. early version of HQ. For a time, I was a world record holder, or I was associated with a world record because we had the record for the most simultaneous players of a game show because there were actual stakes for this game and we have like 130,000 people playing uh, which now HQ had eclipsed and then HQ just died last week right I believe so yeah it just yeah. it just closed RIP HQ thanks for the 50 bucks um <laughs> but uh, yeah I was working as an orange badge in Microsoft Redmond uh writing just writing questions for this game show and they were developing the connect in a nearby room and there was an open door and I saw people like Play, flailing around and I was like oh what are you guys doing they looked at my badge like get out of here like, what am I going to do I'm not going to tell I know you're working on like a VR oh, whatever yeah but that so was... without going into the, the boring stuff the Kinect is basically seeing shapes mm -hmm. and in a sort of a sort of rudimentary version of what the cameras on the outside of the Quest is doing which is looking for shapes in your room so you can't so for instance if you ever tried to play it with the lights off it's, I it, haven't. It, it won't work because it's looking for something to place it in space. Okay, I did not know that. I okay. thought it worked even in. I thought because it was IR, you could have. Like, didn't they make a paranormal activity installment that was sort of based on Connect 
uh, technology where it was. Paranormal. Am I crazy? Have you seen there, those, those horror movies? There is a Paranormal Activity VR game, but I don't. No, but there was, a, there was one of these connect. sequels incorporated that oh, kind of it? technology. I think because it's all supposed to be the kind of found footage. And I think in one of the instances, one of the cameras that captured something in the universe of that movie was a Kinect camera in the dark capturing something in IR. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I, I could be wrong. Anyway. But so I didn't realize how much of it is, is using cameras. Because you can't see the cameras either. You could see, or, yeah, or can you? You can, you can see, see I mean, if you look for them, you'll the, see them. There's yeah. a couple of lenses on the, the bottom ends under your eyes. Ah, okay. Because I guess you do, what's weird, when you have to set the boundary, the safe boundary in the room then suddenly mm. it sort of shows you a sort of hazy black and white version of what the room looks like right um so i figure there must be a camera in there somewhere <laughs> you just have a really vivid but it did look like it did looks like like an ir video because it's not it's does there's no color to it no i mean it's at this point the size of the camera is, is an issue as well because you're trying to get well what's the smallest version that's going to function right and the the resolution isn't important because the camera is right. just functional. It's not it, you're not using the camera on the front to because that that I'm guessing will be a future step once it gets better and the technology gets smaller. Is there's augmented reality as well, right? Mm-hmm. Where yeah. where so, you will see what's it, what's happening in front of you in the real world, and then VR things are included within that world. Yeah. So there there are uh, mixed reality headsets that already do things like that. Well, that was what Google Glass RIP yeah, was, of, right? Google Glass was, was an attempt at that, but uh, Microsoft has a headset that is great fun, very good. It's a, it's a bit chunky at the moment, but that's the direction that we're going we're gonna to go in for sure. The, ultimately, the difference between virtual reality and uh, augmented reality, it's, it's going to become the same thing, which is to say, you're going to eventually be wearing a pair of cool wraparound shades. Sure. Um, and when you're talking to me and you've forgotten my name, my name's going to pop boop, boop, out the side of my head uh, and tell you everything about me. And then when you get bored, you're going to be like, oh, I just want to be at the seaside. And then you'll be at the seaside and I won't be here anymore. Sure. Um, but right now, the, the hardware is sort of divided up until we get to a point where we can merge. Do you have any um, theories about good or bad things that may be in our future vis-a-vis this technology? Um, I think it's, it's easy to, to think about it in a dystopian sense but here's here's a single example so there was a study done um about uh ipad uh, the impact of on your eyesight of playing vr so when you're playing a flat game if you're playing assassin's creed god love it um if you let's say you you aim a bow or you aim your gun in call of duty and the depth of field changes to show you the focus of what you're aiming at yeah that's artificial it's an artificial depth of field when you do that in vr it's real because your eye is changing the sense of depth. When you look down the barrel of a gun and your focus changes to what you're aiming at, your eye is doing the work. So is it, is it actually tracking your eye movement as well? No, 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 it doesn't need to. I mean, it, we will eventually. Just to, I'll, I'll bore you with why we'll do that in a minute. But in terms of changing focal length, you don't want to do that artificially because your eye perceives it as real depth. So they found that people's eyesight improved using VR. But aren't, there's two different things that happen with your eyes when it comes to like when something is farther away there's the muscle the, the eyes there's parallax and there's also the focus and there's also right. the focus of the lens it's the muscles changing the shape of the eye right but you, your, exactly your eye doesn't the same do, in vr as it is but in how life. could it know that your eye how could it know to give you a different it doesn't know you know <laughs> I, 
like I get it. I get it from the standpoint of having your eyes move relative to each other because yeah. you have two different. You have a left and right field. In a, so, in a VR world, everything's always in focus. It's you that makes it out of focus. So I'm still trying to get my head around. I get if suddenly something is in the distance, your eyes are going to go from being um, more crossed to more parallel. Right. But then the actual focus within each individual eye, why would that change? Well, or how would that... Because uh, all it can be giving you... I can't put... Do you get what I'm saying, Matt? I, yeah, I'm a, l- a little... Because <laughs> like, still, it's, it's two flat screens. To, it's, it's, they're you're different. You're not looking each at a flat eye. screen. But you are, aren't you? You're not. You... Well, no, you're not focusing on a flat screen. You're focusing on an artificial depth that your eye perceives as real. So what is, uh, so what is physically projected on each eyepiece? So it's, it's two screens that uh, are running at, I mean, the, the, the accepted wisdom is you want to be above 60 frames a second in each eye, preferably above 90 um, in each eye, which as a sidebar, of course, means that you need to have a little more technical prowess because you're not just running one thing at 60 frames a second like you might be in on Xbox. You're running two at the same time, mm-hmm. which affects the, the, the technical grunt of what you're doing. Um, those, like your real eyes, are both positioned offset so that you can create that, that understanding of depth. Um, but you're basically looking into a 3D engine that is, in most cases, always in focus, and your perception of space and depth is purely based on your movement and your eye. So it's the same as real. Whereas you can, for instance, because we the resolution of the screens is not super, super high yet, you can sort of blow your eyes and see the, the, the pixelation of the screen. But when you're looking at depth, your perception is that the depth is real. So your eye does what it does. I think I get... But you couldn't, you couldn't um, just by force of will... You couldn't cover one eye and change focus with the other eye and have something... Yes, you can. And experience something different on that screen. Yes, you could. But it, it can't react to whether you're focusing your eye or not. It doesn't need to. You're reacting to it. <laughs> Imagine the world. Like the world around us right now is always in focus, just like in a 3D engine, always in focus. And it's only what you're focusing on that changes your perception of what's in focus and what's not. But the fridge over there is physically further away from us than the, than the, the coffee cup there. Sure. But there's no difference between the physical distance and the virtual distance. <sighs> trying to think of a counterexample to explain what I'm trying to say. Like if you have myopia, which is near or short sightedness and you can't, you, your, the muscles in your eye can't change its shape enough to bring something into focus. You know what we should do? We should get the headset out right now and do it. <laughs> we should do it. We can. For we can, $450, yeah. you guys. <laughs> we can do it. I think it was even less than that now. There, I just there, looked it up as three ninety nine. I don't know if that's the same one. That might be right. So there, there are two uh, two versions you can get. They're both technically exactly the same, just the amount of memory that. Oh right, the, yeah. So I got the one that has a smaller hard drive, thirty two, mm-hmm. sixty four, or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty amazing. It's and like you said, if, if you're not a gamer, this is a great entry point because you don't. There's no it's learning the curve. same it's, price as a PlayStation. So yeah, that's what sort of swayed me. It was like I'm not a PlayStation person, but I mean, if it, it, it fascinates me when people go from like playing a Mega Drive. To this i can't imagine what that must be yeah. like because you missed 20 years of gaming in the middle <laughs> oh god i kind of i kind of wish i could have that feeling um and it's it's interesting because that the first time i tried vr completely blew me away and now it's sort of harder and harder to make me have that same feeling of like oh my god this is amazing but then just now i think i was talking to you about this earlier today um there's a, a sort of beta prototyping thing you can opt into on the quest that has hand tracking so now you don't even need to hold the controllers anymore it's mapping 
your real hands with the depth camera into VR in front of your face. And it's pretty it's pretty accurate so far. Check it out. Heard, it's yeah, wild. Okay, it yeah. is wild. <laughs> I want to do it. Yeah, Matt brought this over a couple weeks ago and I was pretty pretty blown away. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot which games we were playing, but all of them yeah, I think it's just I mean I got I got the full rundown from Rob, who is the as fine a guide to VR as you could have. Two kinds, and again, like uh, even going down have... to things like when we were in uh, when uh, blowing fans on me and stuff from the outside. <laughs> oh yeah, do you know what I should? I know we got to wrap up. I just feel if people are going to get into VR, let's talk a little bit about VR etiquette. Number one, don't touch somebody that's in VR. It's funny to you, it's not funny to them. It's cruel. <laughs> don't do it. Um, but what you should be doing is trying to improve their experience. And that might mean, for instance, in the case of Matt, when he was uh, walking the plank 60 stories up, uh, looking down at the sidewalk, getting a fan and making him feel like he's really going to fall to his death. Yeah, you're sort of fanning me with a book by the side. (laughs) Yeah, you've got to make people terrified, but don't touch them. Leave them in peace. Don't touch them. Scare them, though. Are there rules? Are there? Um, That's the big one. Oh, oh, Jesus Christ. If you are... uh, a person who smells, uh, wash the wash the headset. Don't smell in the headset, and don't leave a bunch of like skin flakes on the, sure. the sponge. Just be be a good human. It's if so, you're gonna treat it like underwear, I wouldn't give you underwear that was dirty. I would clean it yeah. for you, and uh, and you put it on them and then fan them from the outside. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't touch them when they're wearing your underwear. Yeah. I go like, is this not like an underwear experience you've never had before? This is the future of underwear. That's right, future of underwear. Actually, do you know what? This is an interesting topic. Before oh, no, so, there's so much stuff we can talk about. <laughs> future so, of underwear. We can do, we can as, go a little bit. As, over there. as everybody knows, like all new uh, entertainment technology is spearheaded by the porn industry. But then hasn't so, that been disproven recently? Like, didn't wasn't that not the reason that uh, Blu-ray beat HD DVD for the first time? Like, it wasn't. Oh, I d- yeah, there porn. might be something different with that, but like VHS, like that was sure. that was a yeah, lot. Yeah. And same with <clears throat> with streaming entertainment. That really came from people saying, "Well, how? What's another way that I can watch adult movies?" Um, so for me, it's fascinating to watch how people are exploring. How do you try and create something that feels real? Because going way back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation about 360 video, when people film uh, an adult movie in 360, it's maybe more immersive, but you don't have parallax. You can't look around the side and see the side of somebody's head. It doesn't feel real. It just kind of feels like you're watching a video in a weird way. If I way. can't see the side of their head, what, what have we been doing here? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so in order to create that, then you need to start capturing performances in with photogrammetry and, and light field capture uh, and volumetric capture. Um, but... That's that's one thing. The other thing's really interesting. There was an expo uh, in Vegas. This must be like five years ago now, uh, like a, a technology expo in Vegas, where a porn company was showing uh, shapes that were drawn with sound in the air. So I, I have no idea how it's done, but you could feel a cube in the air. You could pass your hand through it because it's made of sound. You could feel the edges of an object made of sound. Wait, say that again? <laughs> I don't even understand it either, but it's, it's something to do with, with sound waves. I have no idea how it's done, but you could feel, you couldn't see the object, but you could feel that there was a shape in the air that you could pass your hand through, but you could feel there were edges to this object made of sound. Because of the audio feedback you're getting when you enter those parts of the, of the No, no, it would be like if, you, if you're in front of a speaker at a club and you could feel the bass. There was something in the oh. precision of the sound wave, you could feel the shape of an object. Very, 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 very basic, but... I'll, I'll be fascinated to see where that is at now. I don't get it, and I'm fascinated. Yeah, that's that's amazing. All this stuff is. And by the way, if we didn't already, you said the name of The Invisible Hours is the game. That's right. And uh, I'm looking it up right now, and 
over nine out of ten on on Steam. Thanks, you guys. Ninety five percent on Steam, no less. Yes. What other games have you worked on that people should? Uh, if people have PlayStation VR um, I'm really proud of what we did on Farpoint which was the the first game to use the the PlayStation aim controller which is like a little kind of uh, gun thing that you can hold feels really cool Um, in terms of flat games um, I'm still really proud of a game called Rhyme which is couldn't be more different to the Invisible Hours it was a game that I made with the same company Tequila Works in Madrid which was we were trying to tell a story that was as rich and allegorical as something like Life of Pi mm-hmm. 10 hours long there's not a word of dialogue in the whole thing and rhyme spelled R-H-Y-M-E or uh, spelled R- R-I-M-E R-I-M-E like sailors uh, or what is it right. rhyme? rhyme of the Ancient Mariners right. yeah 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 uh, so yeah I, if, if people want to uh, spend their precious hours of life on something that I did. I'm excited to check uh, out the Q- I, I didn't know about Cube, but that looks like right up my alley as far oh, as puzzle, okay. puzzle-based games and then watch the version or play the version that you wrote the story for oh, is what boy. I should do or okay. not. Yeah, why not? Can I get that Just, on Steam? Because I don't have a console. Yes, yeah, okay. yeah. I'll do that. But yeah, I would I'd recommend if you uh, you can play the, the Invisible Hours flat. It's way better in VR, but you can still play it on a, as, a, as a traditional. You can play it on Matt's uh, Oculus? Um, not yet. I can't say whether you can or you can't, or you won't be able to yet. But possibly conversations about trying to port it over. Maybe, okay. maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, but the ideal platform for Invisible Hours is what VR, one way or another, is is the Just, perfect version. And which ones can you get it on right now? Like PlayStation VR, or? PlayStation VR, Oculus Rift, oh, okay. uh, and HTC Vive, Valve Index, uh, all the sort of PC uh, uh, cabled platforms. Okay. Awesome. Check those out, everybody. So do that. Anywhere else that are, you're on Twitter and the... I am. I'm at Rob Yescom, Y-E-S-C-O-M for mother, B for brother, E for echo. Uh, and I've only just joined Instagram. I'm 41 years old. I've only just joined Instagram, you guys. You don't need to be on it. It's... I don't understand it. And I know that I should, but I don't understand it. Oh, that's you also... need to be on TikTok is what you have to be. Yeah, we're, we're also all, we're, we're five behind. TikTokers. I got to tell you the way. So um, me and my wife are constantly talking about this. How we feel like we're just at this age when you hit your fortieth birthday, you sort of feel yourself drifting away from the, the yeah. pop culture shore. I, even though I'm not on TikTok, I did watch TikTok compilations on YouTube because I was like, I got to stay up with this, you guys. <laughs> no, you don't. So I'm I'm up on all the memes. You know, I know what the furry versus gamers thing is, right? I'm, I'm on top of all that. Don't worry. Uh, but uh, no, I'm still learning Instagram. <laughs> uh, well, you can find us. We we don't even have an Instagram. We did. did we? Have you know, we really should. That's the one thing. But for this podcast, we should. We have. should have. It would probably be the most useful social media to be on but right now. We but. do have Facebook and Twitter. Both probably science as the handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find us individually on Twitter at Andy T Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Mm-hmm. Probably science gmail dot com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like us to cover. And probablyscience.com is the website. That's where you can also find our donation buttons and our links to all the show notes, the things we talk about, uh, stories we cover, we link to from there. And we'll put up links to things like The Invisible Hours and your starring role as a robot bouncer. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I can yeah. find the video. I'll... <laughs> it is good. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. What a pleasure, you guys. Thank you both. All right, listeners, thanks a lot. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.